You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Peter chapter 3, but we're looking at the context of 1 Peter 2, referring to submission. So as we consider this role of submission, that is yielding over to, uh, the word hupotasso, as we've mentioned several times, is lining up under that authority. This is the same word that Paul used, and it's the same word that Peter uses once again in chapter 3. So here we have in chapter 3, wives, likewise, because he's going back to the previous mention of submission, be submissive to your own husbands. Now here again it's important. When we looked at Ephesians, it isn't mandate for the woman to be submissive to any man but she's called specifically to be submissive to her own husband. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not submissive one to another, but the call here specifically is for the woman to be submissive to her own husband. Now, last week when we talked about submission, I uh, picked up second and third hand that some of the men were nudging their wives and talked to them later on in the day that, reminded them about this issue of submission. Somehow, uh, husbands, do you recall any of the teaching that we did prior to that? <laughs> Sometimes we forget those things. We have to understand that this submissive role is not in any way demeaning the wife as a woman or as an individual. She's not less spiritually, intellectually, with less talent or any other thing. This is simply God's divine order. When God has the role of submission and authority in function and design for all societal units, there's a reason for it. When we think of the military, in which this term is actually used. When we think of an officer overseeing the enlisted men, when I was in the service, there was many young officers that came out of the academy as first lieutenants and they, uh, or second lieutenants, and they, they would come aboard a unit and they had no clue uh, as to the parameters of uh, combat issues, and they, they had it all from the books, but you take a tech sergeant or a master sergeant who had been a combat veteran, and they had miles of experience. They had years of experience. They had practical experience, and yet they were in submission to the officers. That's the way it has to be. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It's just part of God's design. So we have to understand that there's a distinction between the essence of individual or their abilities 
and the function and design that God has given us. So as we look at this text, Peter goes on to say uh, that even if some do not obey the word, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now we got to contemplate this a little bit to think about the cultural, historical background for this setting as to what was going on when Peter wrote this. In this society, I already gave you the understanding of how the Jewish culture adopted this uh, uh, laws or rules of what the roles were for a woman. So in that society... It was a very subservient role that a woman took. And it wasn't what God had designed. It wasn't that they were called just specifically to be a servant in a household. It was the way that man had tried to dominate the woman in that society. And that was the perhaps the motivation for many of the women's rights movements and the women's liberation movements, which took it to the other extreme. So we have to understand that in this society, there might have been a a woman who came to the knowledge of Christ, and then she had a husband that didn't. So there was an unequally yoked unit there. So Peter is saying, okay, wives, I want you to be submissive to your own husbands, even if some of them do not obey the word. Well, think about that setting. When you think about a regenerate person, a woman, in a relationship with a man that's an unbeliever, she has a total different philosophy of life. She has a total different approach to everything because everything is dictated to her by God's word. When the husband, being an unbeliever, uh, is unruly or is not even understanding the essence of God's standards, he's, he's exhorting the wives here to be submissive to him. Uh, you know, it may be foreign to us to consider this concept because in our society, uh, to be submissive to somebody who isn't benevolent is just not something that a person would want to do. If a husband is, you know, not the person that the wife thinks she should be, he should be, then she either gets out of the marriage or they, you know, she doesn't listen to what he desires her to do. But in this case, Peter is telling the wife to be submissive, even to those who are disobedient. So what do we think? Uh, Peter was a little bit uh, puritanical here. Is he trying to come up with some idea that perhaps he came up with this philosophy of the marriage unit? Or was this God's design? This is part of God's design. It's actually in a command form, an imperative form. And he says that they may be one by the conduct of, of their wives. So it isn't by the wife trying to uh, 
win her husband over by leaving some kind of scriptural means on the night table or trying to preach to her husband. But however, when they said he's one without a word, that doesn't exclude scripture because we need to give the word of God in order for somebody to understand the gospel. So it doesn't mean that the the wife here was prohibited from sharing truth with her husband. It was it was just that she wasn't exhorted to preach to him or try to proclaim things to him in order for him to come to the knowledge of the truth. So here Peter was trying to show that even in his fallen state, that he could be one without a word. By what? By the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now, when Peter says this, this is a little bit of a a different uh, way to phrase something. Peter is talking about here... um, Submitting to a husband who is an unbeliever or a disobedient believer, she can do so without fear because she's submitting as unto the Lord. What does that mean? Submit as unto the Lord. As Paul gave us in Ephesians 5, verse 22, 23. Let me read it to you just to bring that back. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that mean in practical, in a practical sense? <coughs> yes. Excellent. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. It isn't dependent upon the husband's character or his, even his actions. It's submitting as unto the Lord. God's commanded it. And they can do so without fear. <clears throat> because they're not fearful of submitting to, the, uh, to their husbands because God's commanded it them to do so. Now we discussed last week there are circumstances in which uh, God has given us in our society civil laws to protect if there's any physical abuse or any kind of abuse. A woman should be protected from that. And I'm an advocate of that as well. So we're talking here of just a person. Yes, Lisa. The, if a woman okay, the question is from Lisa, what does that look like? If if there is an abusive situation in which the wife 
and the children endangered, uh, could she, would it be appropriate for her to pull herself away and the children away from that harm? And I would say definitely it would be. Uh, not for divorce, but for him to be able to come under the uh, authoritative uh, correction that's necessary by the authorities in order for him to be prohibited from bringing harm to the woman or the children. You have to be able to prove it to a legal authority that that was happening in order for that to be justified. Give me that question again. Uh-huh. Even though it was occurring or you felt that it was imminent, only when there was actually proof and the authorities were involved, then she could make or action to make? Uh, I don't know if I can answer that one. Um, in cases, uh, we've, um, we were approached as pastors when I was down in Kootenai County by the prosecutor the Kootenai County prosecutor. And he brought the pastors together to inform us of the laws regarding uh, physical abuse of a spouse. And if we were counseling, say, uh, a woman or counseling a couple, and it came out during that counseling that there had been some abuse that was verbally told to us, we were... Uh, mandated by law in the state of Idaho to report that to the authorities. And they would perform an investigation at that point in time. So I don't know what they require in order to to uh, restrain a husband. I know a wife can get a restraining order if she has been abused. And I don't think it requires some kind of physical evidence of bruising or things like that. But I think that a wife can obtain a restraining order if she had been threatened. Because even a verbal threat is uh, a battery. So you're you're talking about a law element that I'm not completely uh, understanding of all the ramifications. Ron? Back to the original question, would that be turning all cops and taking cookies in jail? I didn't hear that. All the cops and she's arrested. Yeah, you know, I I don't know how you would uh, carry this process out in, in, and I think it would be dependent upon the history and all of those uh, factors because one incident uh, could be a manifestation of a pattern or it could be a repetitive pattern. It depends on the circumstances. The wife is to forgive. And this I'm not saying this is a justification for divorce because it doesn't give us that in Scripture. But it is justification for legal action to take place. And that's even going back to being in submission to the authority, governing authorities for those who do good and for the punishment of those who do wrong. So if we're called to report such an incident, then the wife is too. If a pastor's given that responsibility that even if he hears it in the conversation of counseling, he's mandated by law to report that to the authorities. And I've had to inform 
couples in the past which were down in Kootenai County. Um, and I even called the authorities on one individual that was abusive. So um, that is the mandate. But the wife's role here, uh, how, how do we factor this in for forgiveness and submission? Uh, the wife is still, as all of us are as Christians, commanded to forgive. But that doesn't mean that there couldn't be some uh, punishment or something that would be where the husband who has carried out this abuse isn't uh, prosecuted and taken to the authorities and whatever they deem as a punishment for him. And yet the husband, is, uh, the wife is still praying and desiring to be restored in that relationship. Yes, sir. I don't see in scripture where it's required for, let's say, a, a wife or wife and children. Um, it's a, I don't see a requirement for her to call the authorities on her husband. And nor do I think she needs to uh, wait until it's gotten to a certain point before she separates, you know, for a time to pull them away from her own. I mean, I don't see, I don't see she needs a court order to be justified in, in doing that. You mean to pull away yeah, for their own protection? Yeah. Pull away from yeah. her own or her children. Right. There, there does not need and to be. Right. But there is a requirement if a pastor is aware about it. Uh, of that to inform the authorities. But that's a requirement from the authorities. That's not right. a requirement from Scripture. No. When scripture talks about lawsuits against brothers in 1 Corinthians 6. Right. You know, and how now maybe a lawsuit yeah. maybe a different thing, but we're, we're to judge one another within the church. And, and even later, angels and others. We're not to let, you know, others outside the church to, to settle your disputes. So right. Now, thing, but we should try to resolve that, I think, and to to appeal to the brother to change and get help. And, and I mean, it's okay if he does end up in prison, then yeah, bring him with you, you know, and, <laughs> and, and hope, hope he changes and pray for him. You know, okay. Still, like you said, divorce isn't necessarily the right option either. Right. Let's go back a little bit here because we're talking here in the context of an unbeliever. I fully believe, in, and so does the leadership of this church, that in the case of a believer, then the church would handle that. When you have the case of an unbeliever, there's no authority that the church has over an unbeliever. So we can't mandate anything from an unbeliever. He doesn't have the power or the ability to respond, nor would he. So in the context, what I'm speaking of here, in the context of a Christian, quote, marriage, then the church should intervene. So there's no question about that. And we have to make that distinction. It isn't a matter of uh, of the church not dealing with it, but when there comes an unbelieving or unequally yoked family and the unbelieving husband is abusive, there's nothing the church has any authority over from Scripture or anywhere else. Only the civil authorities. So that that's where we make a distinction. However, as you said, it's important that we understand that if somebody is under the authority of the church, then the church can exercise proper restoration process, as such as church discipline, Matthew 18. 
Good point. Did that answer your question, Lisa? Or Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that every incident you have to examine carefully. Um, as we look at this, as we continue on, don't let your adornment merely or be merely outward. Here is not a call for slothfulness or sloppiness. In fact, Scripture is just the opposite here. What it's talking about is don't let your adornment merely be the outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. When you look at the the woman that's exalted in Proverbs 31, she wore fine purple linens. So there's nothing wrong with a well-dressed, well-groomed woman and a man as Christians. There's virtue in that. But here, in that society, as much as it is also in our society, uh, a woman sometimes flaunted their wealth by what they wore. They could wear fine jewelry. They could wear a dress that it was full of jewels and emeralds and all kinds of precious uh, jewels. And they would do so to bring attention to their wealth and to them. Here, Peter is trying to express that it is not the arranging of their hair or the putting on of fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. In other words, it isn't the adornment that the husband should be drawn to. That doesn't exclude the woman from being dressed well and well-groomed and attractive. What it's saying is that the man should be drawn to the inner person, that gentle, quiet spirit. Having said that, um, as we addressed the youth last week, oftentimes a person is drawn to uh, the spouse or before marriage by the physical attraction. And oftentimes, especially in our culture, women will dress in a way that would Focus on their external rather their, rather than what Peter is talking about here, the gentle, hidden person of the heart, <clears throat> that gentle and quiet spirit. So when we talk about the, the work that God is doing through the woman being submissive, it's going to affect the unbelieving man or the disobedient man. And we have seen that. I've seen it personally. Yes, Peggy. Right. Well, here now they're making it. There's a distinction in this text when we're looking at verses one through six. Is that me? Somebody else. A lot of electronics here. Thomas, you're supposed to take care of that. The Peter is addressing specifically the Christian wife. 
When we get down to verse 7, it's the Christian husband. And that's what we had dealt with for three weeks uh, prior to this. Yes, definitely, if the husband isn't showing and living with his wife in an understanding way and he isn't granting her uh, <clears throat> understanding and giving her honor as the weaker vessel and heirs together the grace of life, his prayers will be hindered. So we have to understand that this is... Uh, the family unit, it's governed by that mutual concern and love and submission one to another. And it manifests, in this case, with the unbeliever in a way that would draw him to the Lord, even unto salvation. He isn't one without the word of God, but it isn't by his wife trying to preach to him. He's one by the grace and behavior that she's exhibiting and then through the word of God, he is saved. So we have to understand what Peter is trying to communicate here. And when we look at this, uh, our society, and especially in our times, we've elevated the externals. I mean, if you look at our, even in our country, um, between uh, beauty, I don't even know what you'd call it, um, makeup and things like that. I'm, I'm a cabinet maker, so I, I'm trying to fumble for words here. We're talking about a society which puts all its focus on the outward. And yet, here, Peter is exalting the character and the godliness of the wife, living in submission to her husband. And she's doing so as unto the Lord out of obedience to the Lord and trusting God through that, that God will work through that submission. At the same time, Peter comes right back to the Christian husband and gives him the mandate of how he should treat his wife. So we have to understand, this is, a, this is how God's designed the family unit. And as we consider that, we have to understand that uh, Peter is trying to exalt the Lord through this relationship, through the family unit. He's trying to bring honor to God by exhorting the women to be submissive to their husbands. Now, as we look at or consider Titus uh, in chapter 2, he exhor uh, Paul exhorts the older women to instruct the younger women. Let's look at that for a moment because it'll... We're not going to have too much time, but we can look at it. Um, <clears throat> chapter 2 of Titus. It says, But as for you, beginning with verse 1, speak these things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. The older women, likewise, that they may be reverent, in their behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they, here's the exhortation, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. That word obedient is in the same word as submission that the word of God may not be blasphemed. 
So here's the role here of the older women within the body of Christ, in the church. They're to instruct the younger women. When when Paul is referring to the older women as he's outlined in, in this text, it's those who had either been married for a substantial time, perhaps uh, older and had more experience, or they're widowed, or their children are gone if they've had children. But these women have learned what the role of a wife should be, and now they're teaching the younger women. Young women, uh, I'd encourage you, in this body we're rich with with a wealth of godly women who would be able to impart truths that would really enhance the roles of a wife in the body of Christ. So as a believer, Paul is exhorting the older women to be those that are instructing younger women. Now, there's a lot of controversy over, you know, a woman working outside of the home. Uh, was there any examples of women working outside of the home in Scripture? There you go, Proverbs 31. How about Acts? Did you ever hear of Priscilla and Aquila? They worked together, but they they had a tent making ministry and sometimes worked with Paul. So Lydia, yeah, there you go. So there's all kinds of examples of women working. Now here, Paul is saying those with children, uh, he's encouraging them to be workers at home. Now, when he says workers at home, that's not just being busy. The work at home here is a specific work. It's like the woman of Proverbs 31. She made fine linens. I mean, she went out and bought property. She made sure their house had warm clothing. I mean, it's a hard example to follow. But think about what the example was there in Proverbs 31 of the woman. So there are times when... Women will be forced out of the household. We think of um, think of widows. How are they to be cared for? Have we ever addressed that? Not yet. But widows are to be cared for by members of the family. And if we tur- turn to go back to First Timothy chapter five. Beginning with verse 3, we'll see the how God exalts the widows. Now in Acts chapter 6, when Jim did the exposition of Acts, we had a perfect example there of the care and the concern of widows. And in our society, there are widows, that is, uh, women who have children and their husbands have abandoned them. And so... I would put those women in the same category as this because we have to consider the demands and the pressures and all that they have to go through just to take care of children and to exist. Here, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widows has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents 
for this is good and acceptable before God. What that means is uh, the widows that are qualified as widows in the church, that and he's going to give the qualifications of that, that if they have any children or they have any uh, relatives, grandchildren, that they should care for the widows. That's the biblical mandate. In fact, uh, we'll get down to it in a little bit here, but in verse 8, it says, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, this is referring to the man, he is denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. So here, the man again is given that responsibility of provision, protection, and it's even to the extent of widows. Um, about, I guess it's been almost uh, 18 years now, 19 years, uh, Marsha and I took care of my mother who had cancer. We brought her in the home and then finally moved into her home because it would accommodate a wheelchair. And then I took care of, we took care of my stepdad until they passed away. Um, I was told by many well-meaning Christians, well, why don't you just find a convalescent home for him and, you know, let the state take care of him. I said, because as far as I understand, the word says that I should do that. And if I don't, I'm worse than an unbeliever. That doesn't mean that we can always do that. It's a difficult thing to task to do because sometimes there's medical needs. Yes, Dorothy. Well, I feel a little bit different about that. <clears throat> yeah. uh, I don't know that I would want to live with my children. For one thing, and I Well, that's a good point. Dorothy said that, you know, in some cases, a parent may choose not to do so, and they may choose to opt out for another form of care. I'm saying in this case, my mother needed care. Uh, we were still able to take care of her until it got to the point where medically I couldn't do it. And so we opted to do that. It isn't that we wanted to live with her. We didn't. And it put a great deal of stress on our marriage, but... What I'm saying here is that we should be willing to do so. If the parent has means to be able to take care of themselves or there's a way to do so, then that's fine. I'm just saying that the mandate comes back to the family, whether it's children or grandchildren. They're exhorted to care for the widows. Thomas, you had a question or comment? I don't know. It just sounds like directly like you were saying. Well, in spite of what God's word says, <laughs> I have this feeling, opinion, and I respect it. I really do. But I was also going to say that, you know, I'm thinking back of my father. We put him in a, a convalescent home in the later stages of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, Mom couldn't take care of him. Yeah. There are a lot of, I mean, there's extenuating circumstances. There's, there's different circumstances. So we can't make any uh, specific on this, but we can but say that the exhortation... I got to challenge that though, and on, on, for myself, mm -hmm. the Bible doesn't say except in extenuating circumstances. Yeah, so but I, I was out of line. I didn't yeah. even know it, but I was out of line. Right. 
What I'm saying is that there is circumstances where the parents have the ability to have care and don't choose to impose on their children to do so. But the, it doesn't change the mandate of the responsibility of the children or grandchildren. In some ways, is taking care of your own. Right. Lisa. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It says to provide for, and there are many cases where the care is going to be much better for them in someplace else. Exactly. But it doesn't mean you drop them off and never show up again. Right. It's, that's not providing for their mm-hmm. emotional needs. It's you still are called to provide for all of that. Exactly. Uh, just for the sake of the recording, what Lisa said is very uh, appropriate for this text. If if it's if it's needful of a parent or a grandparent or a widow or widower to be cared for and they are able to do so through other means, that isn't an abandonment of this text. So it isn't necessary <clears throat> to bring the parent or <clears throat> the loved one into the home. It's just an exhortation that we should care for them. And that's what this is about. Peggy. <clears throat> Right. Also making sure that they had an education and they had other other things. And it really makes a difference if they've already been in the church. If there's someone there, right. It doesn't eliminate the person's individual responsibility or the family's responsibility to be supportive in every way. So. And see, that's that's what I'm saying here. If a person has the means to do so, there's no mandate for the anyone to take care of them because they're able to care for themselves and they've made arrangements for that. There so. could be severe medical issues too. So. Yes, exactly. That's that's actually what happened the last five months of my mom. I had to get no Jenny. It is, but it is a privilege. And uh, even though, you know, in some circumstances it's very trying, it's still a privilege and it is a way to be obey and respond to scripture. So it isn't wrong for, uh, say, a parent to say, you know, I really don't want to impose on my children and we're going to do this if it comes to that. That's not wrong. That's appropriate. And they're concerned for their children and they have the means to do so. And so that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about when there's a need and a dire need that is to be provided for by extended family. Rob. Well, one of the Ten Commandments is honoring your parents. 
Yes. No, there isn't. There isn't. No, we should honor our parents in our entire lives. And it'll mean longevity for us, too. Carol, sorry. The difference between what the scriptures are saying and today's culture has changed. I think the whole family system has pretty much broken down. To where if the children respected their parents like they did years ago, mm-hmm. the parents were more comfortable being with the children today. My mom lived with us for a while. And here's Fidel. She chose to go. I don't know that that's such a good idea. But she chose to because she felt she was a burden on us, which I totally disagree with. Mm-hmm. But I think if the family realm was different than it is today, I think parents would feel comfortable being with their children, and their children would want to care for their parents regardless. Lanny's dad stayed home until he died. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's just a difference in the culture. But it doesn't change the essence of what we were talking about and, and what Jenny illuminated. We're still to not only revere our parents and care for our parents. And as Peggy pointed out, if it comes to a place where they're in, they choose or maybe medically are needed to be in a facility, we can still be there supportive with them and for them, uh, as Peggy and Bud were with her parents. So... <clears throat> Go ahead, Tom. I'm going to challenge the way you're reading this. Okay. Because I'm trying to read it in context. Okay. In the context, it does talk about widows and and different individuals. But I'm trying to find where it says, uh, and I think, is it addressing the financial needs or the well-being needs of an individual or the spiritual needs of an individual? Because if you read the verses that precede it, Mm doesn't say uh, take care of, you know, it's not talking about giving housing to the widows or the children. Um, it doesn't talk about care of the elderly or that sort of thing. It's talking about the spiritual needs of these individuals. And I, I, I'm kind of wondering if we should be addressing, maybe this is more addressing the in, uh, spiritual and emotional needs of these individuals that it's describing. That's be more comprehensive than that. It's also the physical needs. In verse 8, it's very specifically the physical needs. How do you know it's the physical needs? Because what is pure and undefiled religion? When it says to visit the widows and orphans, it's not just talking about a visitation. Mm-hmm. It's talking about actual provision when there's a need. So here in the context, even in this context, Yes, it, it is talking spiritually because of the previous context, but it's also all comprehensive. You don't uh, say warmed and filled and Walk go away. away. Right. So you have to bring all of Scripture in context with this because it's talking about our provision com- comprehensively okay. for them. Is that cleared up? No. Okay. Well, I, I guess I have, a, I have a second question, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Um, when, in the 90s, when Jenny and I started our own business, well, it was really me, who was, she was working, and I was working, and I started working, but I was very, it was very challenging. For a while, I was unemployed, and it was really a struggle for me to provide for my family. And it was, a, and then, even many years, financially, we really were having a hard time. What, is, what what would my 
responsibility to sin under those circumstances to if I was if I was if I couldn't get it or I wasn't able to get a job or I wasn't able to get work, I was really struggling in that area. I was trying, don't get me wrong, and I was working quite a few hours a day, but it was for very meager amounts of money. And I guess the question I have is um, for the for someone like myself who um, you know, I did a lot of applying for jobs when I wasn't getting them. Mm-hmm. Where what do you do? I mean, do you do you what would your personal advice be to someone? Okay, are you talking about provision for your just your immediate your yeah, wife? Just, just, okay. my, just yeah. family. My I, I was faced with that um, <clears throat> probably almost 20 years ago. Uh, when the economy changed, I uh, was faced with that, and I had a construction cabinet building business, and bottom fell out, much like it is today. And I just did whatever I could. At that time, I was offered a job to manage a store. I had no clue of retail business, but I did it because even though it was retail, um, the owner felt that I could manage the store because I managed my own business. He'd watched it for years. So, And then later on, when I went on staff with the church down in Kootenai County, uh, I wasn't able to adequately provide with the salary that they were giving me, so I took a job you know, uh, with Service Master, which was like a janitorial job. I just did anything I could. Uh, in some cases, we were forced to do that. It isn't uh, a matter of what we do. It's a matter of fulfilling the God-given obligation, anything we can. And we sometimes will try to live up to some standard. Well, we standards sometimes are above what our means are. So we have to adjust to whatever that may be in order to provide for our family. So I don't know if that answers it, does it? It, it does. It was just, you know, I'm, I'm, it doesn't say how, what what exactly is the provision. Right. What level of lifestyle you happen yeah. to be able to. Yeah, you know, it you just says to provide. It says to provide. And yeah. if you're not, then, you know. We have to understand something. In the culture here, when Paul wrote these epistles, uh, provision was food and raiment. Uh, Paul himself had rented quarters for two years, uh, you know, when we look at the end of Acts. So it isn't a matter of being able to purchase a certain house or live in a certain lifestyle. It's a matter of provision for the basic necessities. That's all it is here. The basic necessities of life. Food, raiment, shelter. Food, clothing, and shelter. I think you could even take that as far as you're a homeless guy and have one loaf of bread. Uh, you'd give half of that. Yeah. And which it may not be adequately sharing what, what you yeah. have. So we we sometimes get out of focus here in our culture because looking at provision, we expand it to that of a certain standard or level. We're here basic provision was the necessities of life in the context. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Good point, Theta. We're going to have to close. I'm very sorry. We went a little bit beyond where we're time-wise. Theta's point was that uh, we have to adjust to whatever our, our our provision is, not to a certain lifestyle. So.
Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we know that there's a lot of uh, questions sometimes as we apply this to our lives, but we know that your word is illuminative and your spirit illuminates it to us. And we know that it's our standard for life and godliness. We pray, Lord, that we'd be able to apply these principles to your glory, that we may be able to um, live in such a way that would bring honor to you and to our families. We just give you thanks and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.